Rewind, your week in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This program is brought to you from Wisconsin Eyes Margaret Farrow Studio. This week on Rewind, your week in review. The pool of candidates for the hotly contested state Supreme Court race widens. How the contest could shape the balance of the court. Plus, a vacancy in the state Senate triggers a special election. We have the latest on who's considering a run for the 8th Senate District. And losing governor candidate Tim Michael speaks out for the first time since his defeat. We have his message to state GOP leaders. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for December 2nd. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Well, I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving holiday, mm -hmm. and we are back in action with a lot of action this week in Wisconsin politics. We're first going to begin with the biggest headline is that we now have four contenders in the hotly contested state Supreme Court race. I'll read off all the names. Of course, the newly uh, candidate in the race is Waukesha County Judge Jennifer Duro, who got nationwide attention from the Daryl Brooks trial. Daniel Kelly, a former conservative uh, leading justice on the state Supreme Court who lost in 2020, has already announced. Same with to the two liberal leading candidates in the race, Everett Mitchell, who is a Dane County Circuit Court judge, and Janet Protezewicz, which, excuse me, uh, who is a Milwaukee County judge. So I got to interview and my team at CBS 58 caught up with all the candidates this week. Let's just first hear a little bit about from uh, Duro's uh, announcement on Wednesday and just how each of them are kind of making their pitch to voters. And then we'll got, dive into uh, more about the implications of what this race will hold. It will undoubtedly be one of the most important elections for Wisconsin in recent history. We must replace Justice Rogensack with a judicial conservative who, were, who will fairly and faithfully apply the law as written. I think having a diverse background of experiences and you know being able to do the, the many different things that I've done in my career have really given me a very different profile. The people of Wisconsin uh, deserve jurists who, uh, who will come to a case without pre, um, prejudging how they're going to come out uh, on it. If I prevail and win this seat, my opinion is we'll have four justices who follow the law, uphold the Constitution, don't have preordained ideas on how cases should be decided, and quite frankly, are not partisan. This is the first time in a long time we're seeing two conservatives go head-to-head -head in a state Supreme Court race. It's also projected to be the most expensive, a word we hear often now in Wisconsin <laughs> politics, the most expensive uh, state Supreme Court race as well. And this week, just days after Judge Duro's announcement, we see former Justice Daniel Kelly already taking shots, saying that the only reason she's getting into this race is because of the nationwide attention that she got from the Brooks case. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is we had a four-candidate race for the Supreme Court 2011, but you really only had two legitimate candidates for Supreme Court 12 years ago. This time, you have four legitimate candidates who all have a pitch, who all have the ability to raise money, we think, and it's going to be interesting to watch how they message this. What I'm used to in a Supreme Court race is maybe you see outside groups do a few week of TV, have the primary to make sure that their candidate gets through. Then it's like a three-week sprint ahead of uh, the April election. This time, you have to wonder, how do you message in a race where 
you're not sure which person on your team gets through. So if you are, for example, Fair Courts America, which is said is going to spend millions of dollars to help Daniel Kelly or educate the voters about Daniel Kelly, do you go after Jennifer Doro in the process? Do you trash the liberal candidates because you assume one of each will get through? Now, there's been this nightmare scenario for both sides of somehow it's so nasty on each side that one side is shut out of the April election. Probably not going to happen. So how do you do those ads, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you are uh, Mitchell Pertazowicz, do you do ads about yourself and then like take a dig at the other person at the end? Do you knock down the conservatives? If you're the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, you're probably going to raise millions of dollars for this race. Do you spend all of January and February ripping down the conservatives just in case whoever gets through is damaged goods? I don't know. I've never seen this before. What's interesting is they're trying to kind of pick out their lanes. There's not been much saber rattling on the liberal side so far. They have been very quiet, just kind of heads down, raising money, making comments about, you know, where the positions are, but not really going after each other. The action is all on the conservative side. And you have Kelly this week, you know, saying she only has this. This is all she has. And Doro saying, I will put my credential against anybody because Kelly has not been a prosecutor or a trial court judge. What I'm watching is who's going to spend for whom. Uh, for courts, Fair Courts America. They made a shot across Doro's bow a few weeks ago that we're going to spend those money for Kelly. I asked the group this week, with Doro now in, are you prepared to spend the primary? And they said, we'll, basically, we'll do whatever it takes. That Doro can't be trusted. The reason they make that comment is Daniel Kelly has been on the Supreme Court. He's written about constitutional issues. You don't get many constitutional issues at, as a circuit court judge, period. So Doro, there's this kind of like vein of conservative legal movement saying she could be on the Brian Hagedorn. We don't want to have an unknown right. conservative mm-hmm. in the court. The Doro folks say, uh, wait a second, Kelly had a shot and lost, all right? We know how he does with voters. She is a stronger candidate at the general election. She has his profile raised by the Brooks case, but also she has all these other attributes. She would be a better candidate, a better fit for a court. Well, let's be honest, there are six women in the Supreme Court right now. Uh, tough on crime female candidates tend to do well in Supreme Court races in Wisconsin. It's been proven for the last uh, dozen years or so. So what's next is the big question. How they message between now and, fe- and uh, February 21st. Now they have to get on the ballot um, by January 3rd, filing deadline. Mm-hmm. they got to raise money. But how do they message this thing to the primary? I'm fascinated and, by that. And I'm also hearing, you know, Democrats, if they had to pick, of course, they would likely want to go mm-hmm. up against Daniel Kelly. He did lose yep. in 2020. So that's also something that we could see with negative advertising and the attacks on the Democratic side, because right after Duro's announcement, uh, Wisdom sent out a press release kind of slamming Duro as any mm-hmm. political party would. Uh, so that's something I'll be watching for uh, and how they advertise that and who takes the first shot. And of course, we've said it multiple times on this show of what is at stake. I mean, if you thought the midterms were important, I mean, this is much bigger because of the future cases they could hear on abortion, redistricting, and so much more. Well, don't forget, um, for both sides nationally, who controls the court is key for the 24 presidential election. The state Supreme Court in the past year has ruled on drop boxes, you know, things like that. So you can see the court weighing in on big cases ahead of 2024. Don't forget, it was a 4-3 ruling that rejected uh, Donald Trump's lawsuit, so, you know, overturn the 20 results in Wisconsin. So that's at play, you know, who's going to be in charge of election decisions in 2024. And for national folks, look at the national map in 2023. Um, there are statewide races in uh, Kentucky, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Legislative races in uh, Georgia, or not, not Georgia, sorry, but... Um, 
New Jersey and Virginia. Um, there is not, though, a swing state that has a statewide race other than the Wisconsin Supreme Court contest in 2023. You could make an argument, and Demo Democrats and Republicans in Wisconsin will, that if you're a national organization that wants to try out new, get out the vote efforts, new voter outreach for 2024, your best shot is 2023 in Wisconsin's state Supreme Court race. So you should invest here, which is going to add the volume of money that comes in this race, which is already going to be expensive, but could up it even more because of that. All right. Uh, we're now going to talk about something that happened a little bit right before uh, Thanksgiving break is when Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahue sat down on a WizPolitics event, kind of looking and talking about what they're going to do now that the state has a projected $6.6 billion surplus. That is much more than earlier mm -hmm. expectations. This pot of money just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So what we heard from Lemahue specifically is that, and Voss, that they want major transformational long-term tax changes, and that is their number one top priority. Now, leaders have a record surplus that they can use, just a portion of that, and still have this big pot of money. Uh, Lemahue also floated implementing a flat tax. I also asked him, well, how do you make that work without you know, negatively impacting low to middle income people because they're going to pay more and the rich are going to benefit greatly from that program. He said in response to that, well, I want something, you know, regardless of people's income, someone will see, everyone will see some tax relief. But flat tax, eliminating um, uh, personal property taxes paid mm -hmm. by businesses, two proposals Governor Tony Evers has already voiced opposition to. So this is now what everyone's going to be paying attention to next legislative session. Uh, we heard that they likely are going to get in a room, have their first meeting. Lemahieu has never even sat down in a room with Evers since he became majority leader. So it seems like maybe it's a start of a refresh, mm. refresher. But JR, we'll we know um, they haven't come to really any agreement. No. So it's a start but it could just be another four years of divided government. But it does just make it a little bit more interesting with how much money the state has. Uh, before we keep talking about this topic, I'm now just going to pitch it to Lemahue and Voss talking about tax changes at the WizPolitics event from last week. You know, having $6.6 or whatever number it is when the Fiscal Bureau does their estimate in January, which it might even be bigger at that point, plus the additional revenue in the next, in the next budget, we can make um, transformational tax changes to Wisconsin, make us more competitive than our neighboring states, hopefully keep businesses in the state, get our neighboring uh, neighbors to move into Wisconsin to enjoy those tax benefits, and uh, that sets, up, uh, sets us up well, um, while also giving us uh, money to invest in, in core priorities. Just sending out a check to everybody who happens to live in the state um, doesn't necessarily serve a purpose to say to people, stay in Wisconsin, don't move, relocate business here, any of the potential benefits that you would get by structural reform. So I, I thought it was gimmicky. I said it at the time. It's no different now. Um, it needs to be long-term. It needs to be permanent. And I think those are things that we can hopefully find a way to rally around. Some other dates we got to mention looking forward. Uh, you've talked to Governor Evers' staff about Secretary of State, uh, budget address as well. That's something that's likely to occur in February, but you heard maybe that uh, Assembly Speaker Ron Voss doesn't want those dates. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Governor sent a letter to lawmakers last week that he wants to do State of the State on February 7th. He wants to do the budget address on February 28th or March 7th. Now, the Chief of Staff for Assembly Speaker Robin Voss told me in a text message those dates don't, we'll talk with the governor, but those dates don't work for us. We have not seen the legislative calendar 
oftentimes lawmakers want to have their session days match up with these speeches so that they're everyone's in town yeah, yeah. that kind mm -hmm. of thing um, budget address keep in mind under state law a governor has to introduce the budget by the <clears throat> sorry the last Tuesday in January that is routinely ignored lawmakers always 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 give uh, governors an extension on that the question is until when it was mid-February I think last time they did the budget the question is when they can agree to it go back to the numbers the 6.6 .6 billion is only part of the pie. Uh, DOA Department of Administration last week put out its first look at the 23-25 budget. It added the projection for the end of this fiscal year, June 30th, of the 6.6 .6 billion dollars, roughly, that we'll have projected. They're also expecting 1.5 billion revenue growth for the next two years. After that, you're talking a pot of eight plus billion dollars to spend above and beyond like what we like the base. If you took everything state agencies asked for, every single thing, at $3.6 billion, that means you'd have roughly four, 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 five billion to do whatever with. Mm -hmm. Now, I've never seen a perfect world, every agency <laughs> get everything it asked for. Okay? Another caveat. Department of Health Services is projecting or asking again to do Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. Been rejected in back-to-back -back budgets by Republicans. If you don't do that, it takes away 1.5 billion in savings, so uh, otherwise increases state costs to cover uh, those programs. That shrinks that eight billion dollars, right, a little bit. But still, there'd be enough to do everything you just wanted plus tax cut. With the tax cut that um, let me just talked about going to a flatter tax, you could, for example, raise the standard deduction so that yes, you would increase the lowest tax bracket, but increase the deduction so people would be held harmless. The problem is the top bracket right now, the four, is 7.65%. It applies to income for married couples filing jointly of roughly $380,000, all right? I asked Governor Evers, can you imagine signing a tax, a, a budget that lowers that top bracket? I can't envision that, JR. Why? It's gonna, it would disproportionately benefit the wealthy. Republicans argue, however, that that is hurting our business climate. A lot of businesses don't file as a corporation, they file as an LLC. That means you report your, in, your, your business's income as personal income. That hurts the business community, they argue. There's also been argued from Republicans that we need to change our tax structure to encourage more young people to live here. Now, um, looking at that argument, we lose a lot of people to Chicago and Minneapolis. They have higher taxes in Chicago and Minneapolis we have in Wisconsin. It's not just about taxes, it's also about like, what M&As are offered, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> what I'm getting at is there's a lot of money, but there's not any clear path forward of agreement just yet. We have a long way to go. But the question I'm going to ask over and over again until sometime this summer is, will Governor Evers veto a budget for the first time if it does not do what he wants for education and goes to a place he doesn't like on taxes? All right. Stay tuned. Yeah. All right. I will recap also the latest on the abortion lawsuit. We haven't really heard much about where this is going, but this week we did hear from the three DAs that are involved, which is Dane, Milwaukee, and Sheboygan County. Uh, they had to respond this week to that lawsuit. And the Sheboygan County District Attorney, Joel Umansky, was the one who asked a Dane County judge to toss out Call's lawsuit. I'm talking about Attorney General Joss Call, uh, challenging the 173-year-old ban on abortion. He argues that it lacks merit and it's unenforceable because it's so outdated. In his written statement, he said, if the plaintiffs believe the statute lacks the consent of the government, 
their appeal should be to the legislature, to the governor, to seek changes to the law, not the court. An argument we have heard multiple times. Also, just another nugget on this as well. Uh, it was a few weeks ago, Assembly Speaker Robin Boss had floated the idea of if we were to add uh, rape and, excuse me, uh, exceptions for rape and incest to our current uh, law, he wants floated this idea, which I don't think would work um, or get a lot of support, I should say, uh, require those individuals and victims to get police reports to mm -hmm. prove that that happened. He said that on Wausau Radio a few weeks ago, um, but kind of just stay tuned. This is just the latest update right now, and a lot of people are predicting if this case is thrown out, it will then be going up uh, between going up to the state's high court. And what's key is who's on the court? Who's on, yeah, when like they I meant, hear mm -hmm. the case, uh, if it's a liberal versus conservative, it could change things. Also, <coughs> in the argument from uh, the Sheboygan DA this week, he's saying that you really shouldn't be suing me, uh, or actually that call to them really have standing to sue to challenge it because he faces no consequences if it's over if it's enforced. Mm -hmm. There are a group of three doctors licensed in Wisconsin who intervened in the lawsuit. They've raised arguments because they actually could be prosecuted, right? The answer that those arguments as well, saying, look, uh, this is not unconsciously vague. There are some pretty clear lines here. These standards are very high for those doctors to get this law thrown out on constitutional grounds. Basically, have to say it's never constitutional. His brief says, look, it's clear a healthy six to eight would equal fetus. If you had a, a permanent abortion, that would be illegal in the statute. Like you, The bar is too high to throw this out. The big thing is this is going to push this off now, uh, delay the whole process. We're talking probably early next year. Things get churning. And that timeline is key because the Supreme Court election is in April. The new court is paneled in late summer. When's that case get to the state Supreme Court? And Republicans want to put this issue behind them after the midterm elections. I mean, they don't want this to keep consuming statewide races because of the issue was so prominent during the midterm. Because so. it'll be big in the 8th Senate District and the Supreme Court race was not resolved. Right. All right. Uh, and just a quick update because we got a lot still to cover, JR. Uh, Voss also met with the January 6th committee, uh, reminding to our viewers that it was a few weeks ago that he was, probably over a month ago, mm -hmm. I will say, actually, he was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee over a phone call that he had with former President Donald Trump. During that phone conversation, Voss openly told the press, uh, I believe it was WISN in Milwaukee, that, hey, I'm not going to overturn the uh, 2020 election. It's not possible. Trump has consistently uh, been hammering Voss to do it. So that was it. He issued a very brief statement of how this uh, sit down with the committee went. He said he answered his questions and doesn't believe that he had any involvement with January 6th. Uh, now let's get to the losing candidate in the governor's race, which is Tim Michaels. He kind of opened, he spoke uh, openly uh, about his campaign for the first time since his loss on a conservative radio show host uh, with Jay Weber. Uh, he he kind of revealed quite a bit, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, we'll get to more of the, uh, I guess, his jabs towards the Republican Party. Kind of the news out of it is that he said everyone around him was telling him that he mm -hmm. was going to win. A lot of prominent Republicans and Former President Donald Trump said, I'm not going to come to Wisconsin. You got this. You're going to win. I don't see the benefit of doing it. Congratulations. You know, I think, JR, between me and you, a lot of people were telling us that they didn't want Trump to come back here. Uh, we knew and have talked on this show before about his impact uh, and kind of how he turns off the suburban moms. Um, but what was interesting is he even said former Governor Tommy Thompson, uh, Trump's former uh, chief of staff, uh, Rince Priebus, and former House Speaker Paul Ryan all said, you got this. You got to start a transition. So let's just hear Michaels talking about that call with Trump, and then we'll kind of get more into this. 
He, he said, I'm not going to come in. Uh, you've got this thing. You know, I, I've seen all the numbers. It looks really strong. Congratulations. And, uh, wow. you know, it's just, just what we heard everywhere from everybody. <laughs> Tommy Thompson, he, he, you know, he said, you're going to win. You need to start talking about uh, transition and putting your administration together. Reince Priebus said the same thing. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, Paul Ryan, he said, all these people said, you're going to win. You need to start working on transition. It's, it's tough, man. I'm, uh, my wife and I are, are we're devastated. It, it's the loss is still very raw, but um, you know I'll, I'll get back to work. I would like to make some of the money back that I spent, and <laughs> spent a, a, a lot of it. Michael's added also on the Jay Weber show. I was devastated. Um, you know I'm going to stay involved, but he didn't say whether or not he would run again. He this is now his third loss uh, in Wisconsin. So. Kind of interesting, but no big surprise reveals out of this interview. But one thing I thought was interesting is that he said, well, you know, I'm not putting the blame on anyone, but mm -hmm. the state Republican Party needs a complete ramp, uh, revamp. Uh, they need to run statewide elections better. So it was kind of jabs at the state party. And even though he says he took full responsibility. Yeah, look, Colorado campaigns, I don't know if I've ever seen a candidate who lost fully take, like do a full... It was my fault. Like, I really am the yeah. one who, like, Michael's talked about how abortion fueled his loss. Didn't talk about how he's on camera saying the 173-year-old ban with no exceptions for rape or incest matched his personal belief. He had a bad message on abortion in a year where abortion is on the ballot. He didn't talk about how, he talked about how much money he spent. He talked about how he spent more in the primary than the general. Questions about that, the lack of infrastructure for fundraising, we talked about before. But that's that, all right? Let's talk about the state party and where it's at. Um, I don't get the impression from my phone calls that the Democratic Party is decades ahead of Republicans in terms of infrastructure. You and I get emails every fall mm -hmm. in even-numbered years about how many voter contacts each party makes, how great their staffs are, how they're phenomenal, the red or blue wave is coming. Michael is banked on a red wave, and he was wrong, like a lot of Republicans were. All right, So that was mistake number one. But with the party, what I do get the impression is going on is the Republican Party has fallen behind Democrats in a couple of places. One is paid infrastructure. Number of staffers, paid staffers, permanent staffers on the ground for Democrats versus Republicans, as well as the infrastructure used to reach people. So Democrats have more professional paid groups doing stuff than Republicans do. The Republican Party of Wisconsin often relies on the county parties, which are usually you know, volunteer activists and grassroots activists, to man the phone banks, to knock the doors. There's a little bit difference. Not that they, they have paid groups over here too, but just not as intensive. Number two, Democrats are better at turning out kids on college campuses. It's not just an infrastructure thing, it's also a, a cultural thing. Young people are more prone to like Democrats and what they believe than Republicans. It's been a struggle for years to open the message. Republicans would be wise to kind of cut into that advantage if they could. Thirdly, besides all those things, uh, Republicans fall behind on absentee ballots. Also a cultural thing, Republicans like to vote on election day. Republicans, and I'm being oversimplifying things here, but that's what we do in journalism sometimes, don't like early voting. They have been led to believe by Donald Trump that there's something you miss about early voting, absentee voting, that there's fraud there. They aren't big fans of it. Democrats, however, quickly adjusted to the reality of kind of a COVID situation in 2020 and what's going on now. We talk about GOTV, get out the vote. Democrats now talk about SOTV, spread out the vote. It is a six-week process from when absentee ballots are mailed out uh, 45 days from an election 
to the two-week, well, 10-day window of early voting, to then the final push against people at the polls election day. They are much better at tracking those things. Republicans aren't good yet at targeting people who've requested absentee ballots to make sure that their ballots have been turned back, turned back in. There are no problems with it. You know, remember, clerks can't cure ballots anymore. Voters have to do it. The Democrats track who's got a problem with their ballot and say, hey, this is, have you fixed it yet? Republicans are trying to catch up on that. The big thing is, how do you fix it? That's the chair's race. The party's administrative committee meets December 10th, elect a new chair. Um, Brian Schimming, who's a longtime party activist, is kind of getting a lot of buzz right now. There are a number of other names who are kind of, you know, kicking the tires on this. It's going to be interesting to see who come, emerges from that meeting next Saturday. But the big question is, will that person be a paid state chair? Democrats went to a paid position a while back. Ben Wickler is a full-time fundraiser. That is his job. Yes, he runs a party, but he's really chief fundraiser for Democrats. If you're a Republican state party chair, you have to do your day job and make calls when. Paul Farrell is county executive of Waukesha County. And running for re-election, so he's got his hand full. <laughs> yeah, which is why he's not running for a full term as county <laughs> state chair, because, like, I can't do this. Okay, well, Brad Courtney, who was chair for eight years under Scott Walker, he had a job that had him on the road a lot. He could make calls while he was traveling. It wasn't that hard for him. For a current chair of the Republican Party, you have to find the money to match the infrastructure or get closer, the Democrats have. How do you do that if you're not a full-time paid chair and this is your part-time job? It's going to be an interesting how Republicans, yeah. <laughs> uh, what strategies they'll willingly tell us about and how they just really are eyeing the state Supreme Court race. It just shows how important this race is to them mm -hmm. to kind of really just change the trajectory over the last several years because Democrats have had a much better record winning statewide elections. So uh, they're really trying to change Republicans, that. Republicans, they're already fearful that Ben was going to raise $10 million, $20 million Supreme Court race. They're yeah. throwing out huge numbers. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's going to actually I'm happen. I'm hearing the same thing. So, yeah, but, but there's this there's this palpable fear of we could be swamped by what the Democratic Party can raise because Wicker does such a good job of it, and we're in this transition period with this key race coming up. All right, let's get to stock picks. Rising this week is the Green Party because they secured a ballot access, or to be on the ballot, I should say, in yeah. 2024. So big deal for them because remember in 2020, um, they were not they were denied ballot access. There are two ways to get on the ballot in Wisconsin as a kind of a presidential line. One, you circulate nomination papers, and you get your name on the ballot because you get the required number to get there. Two, once you're there, you get at least one percent of the vote in a statewide election midterm like this past one, and you are guaranteed that ballot status for four years. The Greens in 2020 didn't have ballot status. They circulated nomination papers. There was a challenge filed their papers because the vice presidential nominee moved during the window. So on one set of papers was their old address. Another was a new one. They didn't fix that. Uh, there's a complaint filed. She was uh, kept off, they were kept off the ballot. By getting to 1.6% of the vote in the Secretary of State's race with Cheryl Atkinson, they are now on for 2024. The big question is, will that impact the presidential race? Mm -hmm. Now, between the Green Party not being on the ballot in 2020 and, well, he was then Kanye West. I was just going to say, yay. Is uh, now also being himself. kept off the ballot because he was late turning some of it. Would have impacted the race? Maybe. You know, less than 22,000 votes, you never know. I caution people assuming that Greens just went and voted for Joe Biden because Greens, diehard Greens, think both parties are corrupt, right? So, but if they're on the ballot in 2024, it could impact that race significantly. All right, and mixed this week, we had some big news. Uh, right before the holiday is Senator Alberto, 
Alberta Darling, excuse me. After nearly three decades of serving in the state legislature, she is retiring. She, her seat is already vacant as of right now. That will now trigger a special election, and we now know uh, that we have at least one candidate who has spoken up and said he wants to run for the seat, and then as representative, Dan Knodel. Uh, he represents parts of Alberta's Senate district, and what's interesting, too, is this could be an interesting race because mm -hmm. it covers parts of the Wow counties. Yeah. So we've talked about many times before of how important those counties are to so Republicans. first got elected to the assembly in 2008. Over the course of the last few years, his, his district has changed. He's represented about half the current Senate district over the years. So we're watching who else will get in for Republicans. Will Janelle Branchin run, right? She's been barred from closed caucus among Republicans, assembly Republicans. She's having some outs with Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. Might she run? It's her Senate district, so maybe. The Democratic side, Devin Draca, took a pass. Um, wasn't too surprised for a couple reasons. This is a 54, 55% Republican seat in a normal environment. In a special election, anything can happen, especially low turnout race. Especially abortion is still a big issue on the ballot. So for Rondraka, you could see where she could win. It's a free pass in the special election. Where she wins, you have to turn on run in 2024 for a full four-year term. In normal turnout, you're talking being in a hole of like eight, nine points, just the general ballot, generic ballot. Now, if Donald Trump's a nominee in 2024 and the suburbs go even more south for Republicans, hey, all bets would be off. That's a lot of ifs between now and 2024. So not surprising that Adraka passed, but who will Democrats find? Because this seat right now is keeping Republicans from the two-thirds majority that they won in November, right? Uh, as long as it's open, they don't have it. And if Dems can win it, they would keep them from that majority going forward for the session. All right. And following this week is ongoing battle UW nurses, and they're trying to unionize and get those rules settled. They got Governor Evers on their side. They got Dem AG Josh Call on their side. Work, however, is not. The Wisconsin Election Relations Commission ruled basically that UW hospitals are basically not requiring state law to bargain with the nurses or to recognize them. That means they have to go now to the courts and petition for a ruling that work was wrong and that UW either has to recognize them or can voluntarily recognize them as a union. This is all due to Act 10. Uh, from Governor Walker and Republicans back you know, a dozen years ago. The ruling from work said that law stripped out uh, references to UW hospitals. So they said it was clear they meant to have the UW hospitals covered by this. But a judge will ultimately decide that issue, and we'll see what goes on there. All right. Well, that will do it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. We will see you next week. This program was brought to you from Wisconsin Eyes Margaret Farrow Studio. Rewind, your week in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.